be heard discussed in several of the talks. And we're going to go into a little bit more detail, show you some data, try and reinforce some concepts, and, and hopefully provide some tips for uh, kind of quick and dirty management of patients with these common problems. A list of disclosures. I work with many and feel beholden to none. <laughs> so in the best of all worlds, this is where we're at today. And you've, you've heard this, but I just want to put it all together that we see a patient, we confirm HCV is present, we determine the viral load, the genotype, and make sure that we now have the subtype because that is part of the decision tree. We still have to evaluate histology in some manner. You can't ignore that because it affects your duration of therapy. And we evaluate contraindications to therapy uh, and that's something we will talk about a little bit because my sense is that, that particularly for those starting out, and certainly if you read the product insert, there's a lot more tendency to say, oh, I don't think that I can treat you. And I think in the real world, we can actually treat a lot of patients that, that uh, some guidelines suggest we should bypass. If we treat genotype 1 using a DAA with peg interferon, ribavirin, um, and we use a duration 24 to 48 weeks, we have response-guided therapy and futility rules with some early discontinuations. Uh, but we should be getting SVR rates in the 65 to 75% range now. And for genotype 2-3, as you heard uh, in response to a question before, uh, we're still using PEG interferon and ribavirin. That may change as we go forward, but uh, that's what it is today. And for many years, we've gotten pretty darn good response rates. So if we look at all patients that we treat, we should be getting a blended or pooled SVR of 70 to 80%. Now, there's a lot of studies that say in the real world we don't get those rates. And I think that's where it comes down to issues of patient selection and patient management. So let's have a case. We have a 45-year-old woman with chronic hepatitis C. Her risk factor for infection includes a short period of experimentation with injection drugs when she was 20 to 21. Her genotype is 1B. She has a high viral load. She was diagnosed uh, with depression as a teenager. She had a suicide attempt. It was a Benadryl overdose when her boyfriend left her at age 16. Um, she thought it was the true love of her life. Uh, she has no significant depression since and doesn't feel depressed now, and she is not on any medications. So at this point, you inform the patient that she must get clearance from a psychiatrist before proceeding with further evaluation and treatment. You start an SSRI to see this patient uh, back and see the patient back in three months. You inform the patient that current treatment modalities that include interferon may not be used in her, or you continue your workup and initiate treatment. 
So we have some music. There we go. Okay. So a lot of you would like to get clearance from a psychiatrist because of this remote history of depression. Uh, but half of you are saying, nope, not a problem, go ahead. And a, a few of you uh, just want to preemptively start an SSRI. So I think that this sort of is, is a very common scenario and it illustrates this idea of of what are we going to take responsibility for? Are we going to, to provide total care to this patient or do we feel that we need some sort of reassurance backup or viewed another way, a barrier to getting this patient into treatment? So most of today's talk will be about this idea, the issues that limit treatment either getting patients in or prevent you from getting through a course of therapy. And, and these are the areas that we'll discuss. Uh, again, you've heard a little bit about some of these areas and we'll go into a little more detail and show some data. So let's start with this idea of inexperience using agents because it's very important and often neglected when people talk about treatment. Here's some recent data that uh, it was not DAA, it was PEG interferon and ribavirin use. And uh, there was a 44% discontinuation rate in patients treated with PEG interferon. And this group asked, why did that happen? And so first, it, it turned out that the patient said, I can't do this, I don't want to do this about a quarter of the time. The majority of the discontinuations came from the physician. Um, and when they went back and actually reviewed the chart records to try and understand why was this patient stopped, in nearly 40%, there was no explanation provided at all. 33% uh, were described as futility, though it was not verified that they met an actual futility rule. 5% uh, cited comorbidities and 5% cited adherence. And we know this from a couple of other studies that have looked at <laughs> prescription data where a patient is started on peg interferon given prescriptions and then someone goes back and looks in the prescription database uh, and says, did a patient receive what we would consider a full course? And if you look at that, you find that, uh, that if you look on a national basis, the dropout rate, the, the not getting a full course exceeds 50%, which is kind of in line with the data here. And in, in where I live in the Cincinnati area, we similarly did a survey looking at this and we found a 55% dropout rate of patients during a course of therapy. So you need to be thinking about this and you need to be saying up front that if I'm going to embark on this difficult and costly regimen, that there has to be an understanding between the treater and the patient 
that we're going to try and get through this. We're not going to bail just because it starts looking a little bit hard. And you might say that, oh, but it's really hard to do and uh, patients don't know what they're getting into. But I could tell you that in, in many groups like mine where we've been doing this for a long time, our success rate in maintaining a patient through a course of therapy is over 90%. And I'm sure in Doug's setting, it's the exact same thing. So um, I think that you need to kind of use that as a benchmark that we're not gonna lose more than 10% of patients during a course of treatment. Okay, so those psychiatric complications. Um, let's take a look at some of those issues. There are three major psychiatric issues that you typically have to deal with when evaluating a patient. Depression, bipolar disorders, and schizophrenia. And by far, uh, depression is the most common of these. So the message that I want to give you today is that mild to moderate depression is very common and easily managed by the HCV treater. It is overrepresented in patients with hep C in the pop compared to the general population, and there's an even higher proportion of depression in those with HIV infection. But it does not require a clearance or that you seek help for those patients. Now, I know we have different systems that we work in. In Cincinnati, by necessity, I've had to learn to manage these patients because we can't get a patient into a psychiatrist. It just doesn't exist. There's a limited number of psychiatrists in the community. They only treat well-insured patients. They fill their panel, and they're done. And uh, we cannot just get someone to clear a patient for us or to start any sort of management unless they show up in the psych ER with acute suicidal <laughs> ideation or a suicide attempt. Now, what about this idea of preemptive therapy? Uh, there were a series of small studies looking at this uh, that were basically underpowered and, and generally suggested, we like doing it because our patients did well, but didn't really permit you to arrive at any decision. And there are, are a few somewhat larger studies that say that there is no good evidence to support preemptive therapy. Now, the exception to that is actually a study that just came out a few weeks ago from a multicenter trial in Europe where patients uh, who had no diagnosis of depression were randomized to receive preemptive therapy with an antidepressant or not and they used one of these scoring systems, like CESD, um, to determine if the patient increased their score or not. And the scores went up, but there actually was not a statistically significant improvement in actual clinical rates of depression uh, for those who didn't get the drug versus those who did. I think that you should learn to use two to three antidepressants and use them well. And so while anyone in the room who's trained in psychiatry and certainly any psychiatrist would cringe at this, I will give you the Sherman rule of thumb for the choice of these agents. 
teary, weepy women get sertraline. <laughs> Angry, irritable men get Paxil. 5% um, of those men will have a side effect that their erections won't go down. And you'd think they'd like that, but they actually don't. And they become more angry when that happens. Um, and if someone is underweight, and we'll finish up with this, then, uh, then mirtazapine or remeron is quite effective in inducing weight gain. So for people that are underweight when you start therapy, which is more common in the co-infected patients, that's a good drug. Um, in terms of drug interactions, uh, Jennifer and I discussed this briefly last night, and it shows you how unpredictable and confusing these things are. I just looked again at the Liverpool site, and it says that you should start with the lowest dose of these because the doses will be increased, which is different than the escitalopram. So, uh, for these drugs, I tend to start at very low doses on the assumption that it's going to raise the levels. Now, for more severe depression, you may require the assistance of a psychiatrist, but in that setting, you're not gonna be treating the patient until the patient is psychiatrically stable. You're not gonna jump into therapy. So this whole clearance concept, I, I think you can do without. Now, bipolar disease and schizophrenia are a little more complicated. Psychiatric expertise is usually needed with these patients, and the most important thing you need is a commitment from your psychiatrist to follow the patient and be available at the time when you make a phone call and say, uh, the patient's going nuts here. Um, I, I had one of those uh, about a year ago where, where the message from the police was, we caught this guy chasing his wife with a meat cleaver, and uh, he says it's because of the drug you gave him. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I recommended that uh, the psychiatrist that I did have online for this patient be immediately contacted. You treat bipolar patients during the hypomanic phase. When they're talking like this really fast and say, I'm really worried, but I'm excited about getting on my drug, you don't treat them because it won't work. <laughs> And delusional patients, if, if they are seeing rabbits jumping in the trees, then it, that is not a patient you should be treating at that time. There have been some small studies that have looked in comparison to control patients without serious psychiatric disorders and actually found pretty comparable SVR rates. So with appropriate management, these patients can get through an effective course of therapy. Okay, so let's go back to our case. Treatment was initiated with DAA, PEG interferon, and weight-based ribavirin. The baseline hemoglobin was 12.2. The patient is six weeks into treatment and feels very tired now. Um, routine labs were obtained. Patients ALT in AST are normal, but hemoglobin's down to 9.3. Platelets are 104,000. White count 3.2 with an ANC of 678. And the viral load from the week four check was undetectable. 
So, you would now, here's your choices, DC all treatment, she clearly can't tolerate this treatment. Get a hematology consult and consider for a bone marrow biopsy. Start EPO, reduce the dose of ribavirin, reduce the dose of ribavirin and peg interferon, or reduce the dose of the DAA. So let's get our music running and we'll vote. Okay, so 40% of you are going to start EPO now. Uh, you are within the traditional criteria. Her hemoglobin has fallen below 10, but a somewhat larger number will reduce the dose of ribavirin, and uh, I think that's the right answer, and we'll take a look at why. So, we're now going to talk about the cytopenias, anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, in a little bit more detail. So, anemia with telaprevir was significantly higher than in the control group with PEG interferon, ribavirin alone. And the same thing was true in bosepravir, the control group versus the uh, response-guided therapy and the, uh, the long-term or 48-week therapy arm. Now, with the telaprevir studies, no ESAs, no, uh, no EPO was used in the context of those studies. And the patients were managed primarily with ribavirin dose adjustment. In contrast, in the bosepravir trials, uh, EPO was used um, more frequently uh, and was used, in fact, fairly frequently with ESA use, 43% in both of the bosepravir active arms compared to 24% in those patients that got PEG interferon ribavirin alone. So, and that was also used with dose reduction, which was more frequent, in the active drug arms. Now, after the first, the pivotal studies, there was another study that was begun, a, a multi-center, multinational, randomized controlled trial that uh, actually looked at which is the best strategy to use. And uh, patients were randomized one-to-one when their hemoglobin fell below 10, or the investigator had a little bit of discretion when it looked like it was like, like barreling downward in those first few weeks and it was going to fall below 10, they were allowed to initiate the randomization. Uh, 500 patients were enrolled. The strategy was EPO versus dose reduction. Um, they reduced their ribavirin dose, 200 to 400 milligrams a day, or added a standard dose of weekly EPO. And these are the SVR rates. So they were identical, telling us that we clearly were able to avoid the use of EPO in these patients if we did appropriate ribavirin dose reduction. 
And that's really important because uh, if you don't know it, there's a lot of black box warnings and concerns about the use of EPO. And uh, though in past years we used it quite freely, um, it's sort of become the black sheep that we should not be using unless we really, really need it. Now there was a post hoc analysis uh, looking at the uh, patients in the telaprevir trials as well, um, and actually it was pooled data looking at both the treatment naive and the prior non-responder patients. And, uh, and these were compared in terms of those that had no dose reduction, a modest dose reduction, or those that were quickly reduced to 600 milligrams a day which is something we kind of tried to do without when we were managing patients with just PEG interferon and ribavirin. And uh, what we see, these are the SVR results, and though there is a slight numerical advantage to those that, uh, that had no reduction at all, um, there's no statistical difference between these these patients in these very large post hoc analyses involving a, a couple of thousand patients. And uh, the results are the same, telling us that in fact you can reduce very quickly down to the 600 level without getting into trouble. Now there's anecdotal suggestion from people that do this a lot, that we may even be able to go lower than that and sometimes have to go lower than that, but we don't have good data on that. I think what we can take away from these two studies is that, that as we see hemoglobin dropping, we should not be hesitant about quickly dropping the dose, and we probably don't need to do it incrementally. We can drop right down to 600 and uh, you will not lose your, your curative effect in terms of getting rid of this virus. Neutropenia, uh, you've heard a little bit about neutropenia today. It's commonly seen. Um, there are studies that have looked at this and found no increased risk of infection when the ANC falls below 500. Um, Generally, in practice, people will often give medications uh, to try and increase, give Neupogen to patients when it falls below 500. But uh, again, we don't think that there is an actual big risk in these patients. Um, there, in patients with late stage liver disease who have been treated, in the European trial you heard about earlier and some reports from the US, there does appear to be an increased rate of sepsis occurring in those patients. And it is unclear at this time whether that is directly related to neutropenia or whether it is another factor. There's a little bit of data that actually says that it is not neutropenia um, but lymphopenia that may be important, but we don't have enough at this point to be able to make a call on that. Thrombocytopenia. So the bottom line is, it, I think in my practice, when I see patients that failed therapy from the outside that were stopped, this is the biggest reason. 
platelets drop below 60, 70,000, everyone panics, and they stop therapy. And, and you haven't cured anyone because you stopped too early, and, and all you've done is make your patient miserable and then make them a, a treatment experience patient instead of a treatment naive patient. So except for patients with hemophilia, it appears there's no significant concerns until platelet count falls below 30,000. And generally, by, by dealing with the PEG interferon dose, you lowering it, you can, you can often manage this between 20 and 30,000. Um, we do have availability of Altrombopag if further dose reduction is not feasible. Um, below 20,000, there is some data, particularly from a series of reports in Japan, that did show an increased risk of spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage. And uh, you heard Doug talk before about his patient getting Altrombopag, uh, and uh, there was a study that was done in patients with hep C to see if we could make them ready for therapy. And the answer is that with the use of the drug uh, before the addition of PEG interferon and then continuing with the PEG interferon use, patients were able to be maintained at levels of about 100, which no one would worry about in any way, shape, or form. But this is an expensive drug, and frankly, it's probably better not to panic, let your levels fall, and, and tell your patients not to ride their motorcycle or go uh, cliff climbing during their period of therapy. So our patient is now at week seven of telaprevir, pegylated interferon and ribavirin, and she reports by phone that she just developed an itchy rash on her arms, chest, and back. And you ask her anything else, and she denies specifically fever, chills, or oral mucosal involvement. So here are your choices. Stop all treatment now. Ask her to come in for an evaluation. Request a photo be sent of the rash. Tell her not to be concerned because this is common, or call your lawyer. <laughs>
go from there. Doug is looking at his phone. He probably has those pictures on his phone as well. So, uh, <laughs> so dermatologic <laughs> issues are a feature of all of the drugs that are shown here. Pegylate interferon, ribavirin, and telaprovir. We have not seen rash as, as a significant independent feature for bosuprovir. So pegylated interferons do cause dermatitis, a local reaction, sometimes quite severe, and I, I hope you never see one of those, but if you see a patient at an injection site develop an ulceration, not just redness, they all develop redness, but uh, if they actually develop a scooped out ulcer, you need to stop the peg interferon. Those will not heal. Um, I have discovered that over the years the hard way, including patients that have required skin grafts. So don't try and beat that one. You can't. Um, patients who have psoriasis get much worse with peg interferon. And frequently, you don't want to give those patients steroids on top of the treatment that you're giving them. Um, so you need to have a dermatologist in your back pocket who will consider things like phototherapy to try and manage those patients. Ribavirin clearly causes a drug eruption, um, and uh, that drug eruption can sometimes be hard to differentiate from what we see associated with telaprevir, which we'll take a look at. So you need to grade your eruption. And it can be mild, localized skin eruption with a limited distribution on several isolated sites. It could be moderate, a diffuse rash involving less than 50% of the body surface area. It could be severe with greater than 50% of the body surface area and have mucous membrane involvement or target lesions. Or it could be worse than that. It could be scar which is a severe cutaneous adverse reaction with generalized bullous eruption. Dress, which is drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, Stevens-Johnson, toxic epidermal necrolysis. Um, these are really bad things that a patient can have. Here is some pictures of what these rashes look like, a mild localized rash a more generalized moderate rash. This patient did have uh, more than 50% involved with some oral involvement, so, uh, so a more severe rash. And uh, I did have, I don't know if you call it the pleasure and opportunity, but a patient with DRESS, so that's the uh, drug reaction with eosinophilia. Eosinophil counts to 20%. Um, and uh, severe oral lesions, uh, massive swelling of oral mucosa. Um, and uh, this is a big deal. I mean, these patients are very, very sick and should be hospitalized immediately. So the management, mild rash is conservative management with topical steroids, a moderate rash uh, without mucosal involvement, you stop telaprevir, especially if you're greater than that eight weeks that was mentioned before because you're not going to improve much on the result. You might as well get the patient off the drug. And you can continue the peg interferon and ribavirin 
But if you're not sure if it's a ribavirin rash, you can hold the ribavirin for one to two weeks. And interestingly, if you restart at a lower dose, those rashes frequently don't come back, which doesn't make much sense, but that's just how it is. And in all of the severe rashes and scar reactions, you need to stop all of those drugs immediately and not mess around with this. Um, I've heard of cases where people try to beat it. Oh, let's just get a few more weeks out of it. Not a good thing to do. Finish up with just a comment about weight loss, which I already man mentioned. Weight loss is important when it involves more than 10% of body weight. It's most commonly seen in those with HIV, but we sometimes see it in a patient with HCV alone. Your primary management is milkshakes, boost, ensure. As Doug mentioned before, we see less of this with telaprevir when we're encouraging patients to take a high-fat diet. Um, and by the way, for those of you in this part of the world, you know, fried chicken like Chick-fil-A, your patients love it, and you end up with a really good fat load. So uh, it's, uh, it, it, no other doctor ever tells them to go eat at Chick-fil-A. Uh, and uh, mirtazapine, Remeron is often effective in weight gain if you're not achieving it with diet alone. So your takeaway messages, patients are not cured if you stop the treatment. So to prevent discontinuation of early therapy, you need to anticipate the problems. You need to be thinking about what's coming and you need to tell the patients what you think's coming. So if you know they're becoming anemic, you need to tell them, you know, you're probably gonna start to feel real tired next. And they appreciate that and they don't just quit if they know what's coming. And then you need to aggressively manage those side effects. Depression can usually be managed by the provider. And we have now, with these new drugs, new paradigms for the management of the cytopenias and particularly anemia. And we should be using those, not just doing things the way we did it before. And finally, if you have a patient with a rash, know the rash and treat it accordingly. Thank you. You can, you can just uh, sit on the end and then. Good. So I can give you about I think, 15, um, 10 or 15 minutes. Right?